Can um, we add in uh, how how much better he is at basketball than Tyler? And no, 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 no. We just right from the beginning. <laughs> Let's should. just start that rivalry right from that. the beginning. Tyler's legit. He's legit. He is. <laughs> he's he's only a six point five. He's good, but um, even old it's man, thirty nine year old is. I think I. I I would say I'm better than Tyler right now because he's, <laughs> yes. he's not in shape right now. And I got a better shot than he does. So Ooh. there it is. I like that. I his, like that. A lot. I love you, that's, that's the Tyler. I love right you, though, buddy, man. His, his, ca- <laughs> his calves are undefeated, though, right? <laughs> Have you ever? <laughs> that's only funny if you know the guy. It's funny. Um... <laughs> So speaking of, of racism being used for ulterior motives or just mm-hmm. just changing it, or again, we're talking about nuance here, but just kind of twisting it for, for a certain gain. We had a couple of questions here, but um, obviously police crime, which we're going to talk about in a little bit, but do you think the news coverage of police crime or shootings on, on black Americans, mm-hmm. do you think the amount of coverage is a good thing or a, or a bad thing. Do you think shedding light on that in to the nth degree is like, do you think that it's a, does it's that a, make sense? It's an, it's, um, it's not an exaggeration. Is, which is that is, helping at all? I think that's no, what I'm getting. It that's doesn't. that's it doesn't. my question, I guess. Sorry. Not if that's a good thing, but is that going to, is that helping the problem? No, it doesn't. It's, it's only a way to, um, what it does, it actually just makes people angrier because, if this has been going on ever since in our lifetimes, the news has always been like this. It, the news corporations are businesses. And so the whole point is to get enough eyes on the TV screen. And so if you get enough people in the poison box and they watch it, they were, their ratings will go up. And so that's what it's about. It's not even about helping people. It's about simply getting more people to watch your show. There are no solutions ever offered at all. The people they bring on to guest feature, they don't bring solutions to these problems. We would talk about a George Floyd incident 10 years from now, unless something changes in our fabric of culture, which I don't see changing. And so it's, it's really, I don't even watch mainstream media most of the time because it's outrage, it's panic, and it really, what it does is hides most of our social ills and kind of put them under the rug, which I'm going to talk about later, especially about our current occupier in the White House right now. So, so on that same vein, there, there were three kind of big th- sweeping things that happened in the country. There, there were obviously more than that, but Tyler had another follow-up question, but he obviously has had many conversations with you. He wants you to talk to us about your struggles that you had during the Black Lives Matter movement, during the George Floyd movement, and then uh, there was another question that kind of had to do with kneeling in the NFL and the whole national anthem, mm-hmm. um, that whole thing. But just, just talk to us kind of about some of your – Tyler – pose them as struggles. I don't know the story, so you, <laughs> feel free to share. Yeah, I don't know if that's the word I would use, but it's more so we have to we have to think about who is disseminating this information to people. Is this are these black people like me presenting this information to the airwaves? Like who is really promoting these agendas? And so and not that they're bad agendas. Like the whole thing about kneeling, honestly, has been going on for a long time. Um, the NBA player Mahmoud Abdul-Raouf, his name was Chris Jackson before he converted to Islam. He played with Shaquille O'Neal at LSU in college. He 
didn't kneel or something, or he didn't face the flag for the national anthem yeah, in the NBA. And a lot flag. of people said that that's the reason why his career was short. And Craig Hodges was another NBA player for the Chicago Bulls, and he had views that didn't align with what people wanted them to be in the quote-unquote liberal NBA. And so those people are ostracized. And so it's really one of those things where the kneeling, I don't know why that was such a big issue personally. I don't know why. It's, um, I think a lot of it had to do, it seemed like everything had to do with Donald Trump personally. I honestly don't think the Floyd thing would have blown up the same way if Trump wasn't in office. I don't think that the kneeling thing would have been a thing if Trump wasn't in office. It's a way to provide a foil almost. Like it's almost like a counter-narrative to whatever is going on politically. It's, it's pretty much politicized. And so people knew that they would get reaction because they made it about a flag. They made it about a person. But the person who was protesting was protesting issues that deal with the war on drugs. Things that affect us a lot more than other people. And so I don't know why there's an issue with, with, with knee, putting a knee in the ground. It's just the only reason why that's an issue is because the camera's on the person. Just think about it. If people were doing that before Kaepernick, it's like it wouldn't even be a news story to begin with. And so the news makes it something a lot of times... It's not that it's not a big issue. It's just that the news doesn't want to ever offer solutions. It's always just adding fuel to the fire. It's a tabloid. It's basically just a tabloid. On, on, a, on a human note, I think Tyler, Tyler did clarify his question as far as the struggles go. He said uh, potentially you cutting people out or seeing people's true colors or um, seeing posts from people or not knowing if they were being genuine or not. Or just following the, the, the popular opinion, the democratic agenda. The I, would, I would tell you now, I think what I felt like I was betrayed after um, the post uh, of the George Floyd situation. I, I kind of feel looking back at that moment in history now, I didn't even watch the whole video. First of all, I couldn't. It was impossible for me to do it. But looking, just thinking about this situation, I was just angry because I felt like it was just a political maneuver just for other means. It had nothing to do with anything. I mean, we see now that as a result of George Floyd, nothing really changed on the bigger level of criminal justice when it came to police brutality or anything regarding police brutality. What we got was a bunch of people saying that they love black people, the benevolent whites and the mean whites, but there was nothing substantive at all. Okay, so Harriet Tubman may go on a $20 bill. So maybe you put Blood Lives Matter on the street corner. So maybe you take down a racist Confederate statue. What does that have to do with like the actual system itself? That's, that's the, the part that bothers me. That part bothered me the most because I was really hurt at the time. Like I felt the pain. But once I realized that the pain that I felt, it was real pain that I felt. But I don't feel like the intentions of the people who were portraying the story were good intentions. And so you, it, it, it made me sour in a way. And now it's almost like he's invisibilized. It's like the floor thing should still be a big issue now. But I feel like we're on to another story. It's just another news story. It's Afghanistan now. It's election fraud. It's this, it's that, it's vaccines, it's this, it's that. They can always redirect it to something else. 
And so the attention is never always on black people and our struggles. It's always on something else. This is more important, but they had their moment for two months. That's so kind of the way I took it. So I had true yeah. pain, but it's almost like it became just, it, it changed very quickly. So you talk there about, you know, having, having the true pain, right, and, and really seeing kind of how things evolved through George Floyd, not really seeing a whole lot of indefinite and, and lasting action, right, uh, especially Correct. when it came to, to policing and, and kind of the criminal justice system, which, you know, to not speak out of turn, it, it, I kind of perceived that as the bigger picture behind it, right, when we kind of got going with it and what, you know, seemed to at least grab the headlines. Um, so I know that was something that you were very passionate about, right? Talking about criminal justice and, and any type of criminal justice reform, talking about the incarceration system and, and how that, that really is probably a little bit, uh, <laughs> it's got issues, so, right? So basically, I guess to the point I was trying to make before, now that you mentioned that, is that in these cycles, usually the activists like us, like we, the activists, what happens is that our true emotions and like our hearts go into like trying to change the legislation. The politicians know that we have these demands, but they use them because they control the mainstream media. And so they can control and use that as political power to capture entire blocks of people when it comes to putting into the voting booth. And so they know that they don't have to meet your demands once you vote them in. And so that's why I say it's a betrayal because this, that, like, it had nothing to do with George Floyd at the end of the day because it, it, was, it was more like just let's just get Trump out. It had nothing to do with George Floyd. That, that's the way I feel about it. Okay. I mean, uh, you know, I, I, can, I can definitely see that, understand that, uh, that, that point of view for sure. I mean, because it's still uh, like, it, it's like it, it just continues. And then, like, the guy, Dante Wright, he dies in the same area, St. Paul, Minnesota, after Floyd does. There's like a 20-year-old boy, and then it's like it got a little bit of coverage, and then it's like, oh, off to the next thing. You know, it's just, that was a woman. That was a woman. She was actually a girl. She's 16 years old, and this is where the censorship thing came in. It was in Texas. It was 98 degrees outside, and a cop had this 16-year-old black girl pinned down to the ground. You couldn't even see her face. Like, until like a minute into the video, I had to find this through a black independent media source on YouTube to even find it. Like they didn't put it in their title because they knew it would be taken down by YouTube. And so I clicked on the video and watched it and she was foaming from the mouth. But it doesn't make any sort of news at all. A 16 year old child. But yet you will watch a story next week about a 16 year old kid being missing in the woods. But yet you won't even hear this story even mentioned in the mainstream media when we made such a big thing about the George Floyd situation that no one ever did anything about. And so that's what I mean. These things happen all the time. Whether someone being kneed on the neck or anything, it happens all the time. But it's just the news, they have the control when it comes to what do we project, what don't we project. And they don't do anything about it anyway. The politicians don't do anything about it. So it's like they're great discussions, but I don't see any action. And so... That's what that's the more angry part, I guess, for me. I understand that. And, and I think to your point, you probably see it too more when it is more, you know, probably either a, a white cop towards a, a, a black individual. Right. I mean, that's well, that there was a black cop seems, in the video that it there yeah. was another there was a black guy there. I mean, he just it, it's, yeah. it's really more so he's a police first before he's anything else. And so yeah. at the end of the day, he's just a police officer. That's all he is. 
Do you think that there's anything, uh, so John Lamont wrote in another question kind of on the same subject is, is why does there seem to be such a disregard, uh, probably in the, in the media for kind of more so black on black crime, uh, where it doesn't get the same publicity. It doesn't get the same attention nationally, uh, that, that maybe the interracial, you know, kind of conduct does. I, I disagree with that. I think black on black crime gets all kinds of attention. Um, I guess my issue with that would be, well, wouldn't it make sense that blacks would kill blacks more if they live next to each other? Look how segregated these neighborhoods are. So have you ever heard anyone say white on white crime? I mean, what is that? Latin to Latin crime? It's like black on black crime is a result of we live next to each other. We live in the same neighborhoods. So we're going to kill each other more. And so, so that- it's one of those. And also it's a thing that deals with a kind of loss my train of thought, like I knew what I was about to say, like, what were you about to say? So I was going to continue your thought and just kind of ask, do you think that you see more of that? Oh, no, no, of, I knew what I was about to know, say now. A- now, before I lose my thought, I don't want to cut y'all, but before I lose my thought, <laughs> bring it. the local news, if you look at local news, that's completely false based on the question. They talk about all the time someone getting killed in, quote, unquote, the hood or the ghetto. If you watch local news, there's always a story about someone getting killed in Nashville, which is obviously a black neighborhood. So they project it. They don't have to say it out loud without you realizing what they're trying to tell you. These black people are killing each other in this neighborhood on the local news at six. They do it yeah, all I the think, time. I do think that there is a great, uh, well, not great, not great whatsoever, but there, there is a natural progression by the way that wordsmithing has kind of become as, mm-hmm. you know, so you don't sound racist when you're saying something, you know, like it's, it's come, a, it's come a crazy long way. But I, I guess to that, to that same point, do you think that you hear maybe on, from a local level, uh, more about a, a black on black crime, maybe not even murder, just, just crime in general because of, uh, policing and police being in certain neighborhoods as opposed to others? Yeah, so being from a quote-unquote black neighborhood in Franklin, I was um, going back to one of the first questions you asked about the ridicule and um, the experiences with this microaggressive racism that I talked about. That was always a thing with me. They would always say, Kiko, you grew up on Natchez Street. So Natchez Street was automatically a symbol. It was a signifier. The black neighborhood is Natchez, and West Main is the white neighborhood that hugs along Natchez. And so... It goes into the whole segregation thing again. It goes into the whole idea of what's desirable and what's perceived as not being desirable. I was from Natchez Street. I was, but everyone loved me. We all were the same people. We were people just like they were. But it's just, it was simply a marker. It was um, a marker that I didn't put on myself. I was simply from Natchez Street in Franklin, Tennessee. The outside world made that a big deal. I didn't make it a big deal. I just grew up in a neighborhood with a bunch of black people. The same way these people grew up with whoever they grew up with. And so the whole idea with black and black crime is like, if you really think about it, it's like, I mean, wouldn't that make sense if you were in an all black neighborhood that you would kill another black person if that happened? So- but, but, but it's also the drug war. It has a lot to do with that. Tyler, um, again having conversations with you. These are all pointed questions. So Tyler's just feeding you stuff <laughs> right now. No, no, he's, just, <laughs> he's already had the conversation with you. So he knows what the answer is. Damn Tyler, you're writing he's a dissertation just, yourself. He, he's you? just feeding. <laughs> he's ready for fall, baby. He's ready for fall. He's just feeding us the conversation. I, Corey was kind of leading into it with the neighborhood conversation, but he's just, he, he, 
Tyler said, explain your view on how you think cops should patrol in an area that's around their own neighborhood that they grew up in, or maybe one that they live in, or, um, you know, that they, they just interact with outside of just work. They don't just come patrol the area and then bounce and they're out. Well, see, my whole thing is that there's just too many cops anyway in the wrong places. And so my whole question, I posed Tyler that question. I asked him, do you want people patrolling your neighborhood? He told me straight up that no one patrols his neighborhood. So the question is this, okay, so if no one patrols your neighborhood, why would I want someone to patrol my neighborhood? Regardless of the perception of drugs or whatever, it doesn't matter. We want to live without cops involved in every single thing we do, just like you guys do. You guys smoke weed, I smoke weed, okay? So it's like, what's the big deal? It's, it's not a lot to ask that blacks don't want a bunch of police in their neighborhood. It's just like any suburban neighborhood you go to, you don't see cops everywhere. It's only in the rundown, poor, quote-unquote, areas that you see that. And I don't know how it is in rural areas, but I know in the, the big cities, the over-policed neighborhoods are black neighborhoods and Latin neighborhoods. They are. And so there's definitely there's a poverty issue. And there's also a race, there's a racial element to it. And so that's what I mean about, um, like, I don't think the average police officer is necessarily a bad person. I believe that police, I think that there needs to be a, a need, there needs to be some police. Some of my friends believe in abolishing police just overall. I wouldn't go that far, but we definitely need to defund the police. And so we need to defund it. Because disproportionately, they're in our neighborhoods when the crime is not going down. So if you're bringing more cops in, then the crime is still bad. So what's the point of cops? If that's the, uh, it's like, why? Maybe they're causing more problems than they're helping. And so that's the thing that I have, the issue I have with the current president right now, is because this guy is funny. People are always talking about the Democrats are soft and they're socialist, which I'm like, it's so sad that people would think that Democrats are socialists. Like, are you kidding me? Like, I'm an actual socialist. And so Democrats are part of the police state. They increased the police budgets. Joe Biden's 1994 crime bill increased 100,000 cops. Just think about that if we talked about economics, adjusting for inflation. Do you know how much that is, 100,000 cops in 1994? Now we'll probably be closer to 400, 500,000. Across the nation. So that's a lot of police in one particular bill. And so people are just, they like to talk a lot. The military budget is increasing. The police budget is increasing. No one's defunding police at all. It doesn't mean that we don't want police there. It just means that we don't want them in our neighborhood when it's not helping anything. So I actually wrote an op-ed for our paper about um, defunding the police. Uh, I, I agree with you. I just agree. I think in my, in my view, that's the wrong word. I think there should be a reallocation of funds and, and that there are too many police officers and that we're having too many people there that are doing a job that is not policing anymore. They're, you know, they're, they're trying to be marriage counselors. They're trying to help for overdoses. Mm -hmm. They're trying to do, they're trying to do things that have nothing to do with police work. Right. Right. And then, and then again, something else that I know that you and I have talked about uh, before this and offline, and I know that you're, you wanted to hit on this specifically. So I think this ties into it. I do think that when you look at kind of, 
the over-policed neighborhoods and, and kind of maybe some lower income neighborhoods where you do have probably more people and really not even more people, but probably where people are getting caught more when it comes to the war on drugs. It's so they can hit a quota so they can get, you know, a certain amount of funding from, from the government. Right. Mm-hmm. I know you had some things on the war on drugs. And so I wanted to kind of tee it up for you to kind of just keep rolling with it. Cause I think that that's something that needs to get acknowledged and, and spoken about. Well, again, a lot of my war on drugs talk, and I know you guys were talking about, um, what's it, the 13th, uh, the documentary yeah, that talks about the new Jim Crow. Well, Jim Crow Joe Biden, who's in office right now, which, I mean, that's what I've always called him because, and that's why I, didn't never, I never supported him. And I was really upset with friends that shamed me for not supporting him because he is responsible for, he basically kept the war on drugs like, going and made it even stronger than what it was before under Nixon and Reagan. And so this guy, Joe Biden, 1981, this guy started the crime bill in 1981. You guys can go to congress.gov and see all these bills. This guy started in 1981 with this crime bill stuff. 94 was one of the most detrimental bills in history. For black people, it probably was the most detrimental history. When we're talking about the war on drugs, it is the most detrimental bill. Because, and before that, in 1986, there was an anti-drug abuse act that he signed on to, which made crack cocaine 100 times more serious than powder cocaine. So that means 500 grams of powder cocaine or, or crack cocaine was equivalent to 5 grams of powder cocaine. It's called the 100 to 1 ratio rule. And so that did not change until 2010 when Obama lowered the proportion from 100 to 18 to 1. But still, it condemned crack addicts a lot more seriously and put them in prison a lot longer than it did people who did the powder version of cocaine, the same drug. So and not so, to take away from your point, because I and think it's, it's complete, a very valid and, and, point. And that's, and that's racism in itself. People um, don't brand it that way, but it is racism. That's, a, that's an example of where we can see an actual law that is, in, that is inspired by racism that's affecting the whole society. No, oh, that's going back since, yeah, I mean, since law one. I mean, you know, we talk about the Constitution, right? I mean, there's stuff in the Constitution that's just blatantly racist. Uh, I mean, it is. Whether you, that's true. I mean, that's however true. you want to acknowledge it or not. I mean, that's just, you know, we have the original sin, right? Uh, I will say, and I don't, I'm not trying to belittle that at all. I think that that's 100% honest and 100% true. I, there is, that is, that is correct. All of that stuff that you just said. He did come out and apologize, right, for a lot of for a lot but of what that does stuff. that do for the laws? What's an apology? Like, what are you going to do? And then he about was the vice that? president to help for the 2010 kind of reconciliation a little bit, right? Like he did That's kind not, of try to help. But is that really reconciliation? I'm not saying it's enough. I'm not saying it's enough. I'm not saying any of that. I just I do want to make the point in there. There was a little bit more, right? So That's true. Also, but, shame on whoever's shaming you for her, your having views. But see, but why, see, why that's you what, allowed to have views. The difference between the activist community and the people who are in these comfy studios and people who don't have to deal with these issues is that, and me personally, I've never really dealt with these issues, but people in my family have. They've gone sure. to jail over petty drugs, the same mm-hmm. drugs that some of my friends bragged about selling in college. But then my brother goes to jail for petty drug charges. And so it's going to make me upset. And so it yep. happens to a lot of black people. You know, it happens to white people. It happens to other people, too. But the crack law in particular, the 100 to 1 ratio law, which is part of the 86 legislation that Joe Biden signed on, this 
affected, and you can go to the Washington Post article, 88.2% of those people who were affected by that law were black people. And that's Washington Post, a, a very mainstream, liberal, up-your-butt Joe Biden publication who probably all endorsed him. And so, again, it's not like I'm dragging this from right-wing sources or whatever. This is just from anything. I grab information from everybody. And so this is, should be troubling to anybody who wants to be honest about the situation. And apology is just not enough. The activist community wants things to happen now. Things need to happen now. Too many people have died. Too many families have been separated. You want to talk about separations across the border? What about the separations of the families here in the United States? Besides the whole I situation and stuff. Not to degrade those people's experiences, but in, in the United States itself, with our own citizens, we have issues like that when it comes to incarceration and confinement and people's families being separated because of these dubious laws that are in place still. So do you, to that point, do you think that the familiar structure, you know, when you look at it from a, from, from a race perspective, uh, just, you know, do you think that has anything indicative to kind of how you're going on from, you know, 20, 30 years from now and your success? I mean, you know, you hear about the importance of having a father figure or a, or a mother figure. And if you're having this one community that's being adversely affected by these laws, you're, you're setting up that, that child, you know, <laughs> I mean, you're not giving them a great head start, right? I mean, you're not really helping them out by taking it's, their It's kind of like I was sending a near dark radio interview where, Basically, it's, it's a trauma. All this does is just adds to a generation of trauma to the point where black kids, without their parents even telling them, we have this inherent fear of police because we don't see the police as our friends at all. Because we, it's always like you're, it's part of the broader surveillance state. But back then, as a kid, I didn't know what that meant, a surveillance state, a carceral state. But now that I'm 39 years old, I understand that this is just a way to police and control people's lives. I mean, it, it, it really, people talk about freedom all the time. I mean, if this isn't infringing on people's freedoms, I don't know what it is. And so you would think that people on different sides of the political spectrum would be on board with like promoting freedom for everybody. But you see the hypocrisy in both political parties, you know? And so it's just, it's just one of those things where talk to the individuals and let them get their stories out. And you realize it's like, wow, if I was in that person's shoes, maybe I wouldn't want that sort of a presence of police in my neighborhood. And it's, um, I don't think anyone does, you know? It's just, the average person doesn't. Like, what's the need of having, like, that's just going to scare kids, you know? Think about kids. Kids, that's a big image to a kid to see a lot of police around their neighborhood all the time. I mean, it's like, what are they supposed to think? So... Speaking of what we do and do not need, one one stat that really did jump out from that 13th uh, documentary was that the U.S. holds 5% of the world's population, and yet we also hold 25% of the world's incarcerated people. I mean... And blacks are 13% of the population, but yet we're 40% of the prison population. I saw that too, Yes. I think it was Alabama has like one in eight black males. That's cannot, what cannot, systemic cannot, racism cannot, is for the viewers. Vote. That's what systemic racism is. Yeah. It was like one in eight or something like that. One in five. I can't remember what, what the actual number was in Alabama. It was like black males Shocking. vote mm -hmm. because of their, their right to vote has been stripped because and of felony. Yep. So just like, just like my brother. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So I've got a question that wasn't on the outline. Bring we it. Good? 
Yeah, yeah, we're good. <laughs> okay. We're rolling, baby. So, I, so I've got a question that wasn't on the outline, and I don't know if it really necessarily fits as part of this exact bucket of conversation, but I, I just I want to ask it anyway, just because it's in my mind. Uh, you know, we we have talked about you know we're just talking about right trying to get ahead, right, and, and the different cultural understandings, and then you know just stereotypical, you know, microaggressions, micro racisms. Uh, do you think, and especially for you, I think. Uh, you know, this is a pointed question. Uh, you know, your name is Jerry. Go by Kiko. What's on, what, what's, but what's on your resume, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that you would have a different outlook if someone only saw you from a piece of paper if your name said Jerry or if it said Kiko at first? I don't think so. I, 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 think, um, I think my mom always taught me this, and I'm glad that my, my parents are still with me, you know, and they give me a lot of encouragement every day. My mom said... Um, when you're the best, it doesn't matter what color you are. And so I believe that. I really believe when you're the Powerful. best at something, it does not matter anything, any of those dynamics. You throw them out of the window. I think people can recognize like a certain level of excellence when they see it. And so that, that's kind of like the mantra I live by. Um, I want to do a, a real quick exercise. We have a small section here on, on you know racism and or race in the workplace, I guess. Um, but we had another person kind of write in and uh, this person posed the question, said uh, they work in an environment where there's a lot of general laborers at the bottom. And Corey, I'm not describing you. Um, we're, we're just, I just want to clarify, it's not the host of this show. Um, a lot of general laborers as like the primary workforce. Uh, and then there are supervisors, managers, area managers, regional managers, et cetera. It, it's a pretty typical like corporate structure, I guess, up, up from there. But um, said in the last couple, you know, obviously 12, 18 months, notice that, um, you know, the employees at the very bottom are almost 75 to 80% black mm-hmm. or Hispanic. Um, uh, but, but he said 70 per, 70% black or so. But um, while the higher ups in the company, as it keeps progressively going up the ladder, are more predominantly white. Um, so he, you know, I think he, he mentioned to me, he's never really seen racism at play per mm-hmm. se. Like, you know, it's never been like, I will don't do that because he's, he's black. Um, but he has noticed this and kind of taken it upon himself to try to help develop and promote some of the more general laborers at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Um, that are black to kind of promote them upwards through the company and kind of try to, um, incorporate them into the, the higher la- corporate ladder. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess, I don't know if that's really a question there, but like, I guess kind of what are your thoughts? I guess. I think this, um, Tyler was telling me something about affirmative action earlier. I think that's why affirmative action is, is a very important tool. Yeah. And for the listeners, why are all the black kids sitting together in the cafeteria by Beverly Daniel Tatum? That is a great book because three fourths of the book is dedicated to this question of, um, the presence of people, not even necessarily giving a person a job because of their disability or because they're black or because of their sexual orientation, but simply, is there ever a possibility for that person just to make sure that the checks and balances are working? Is that person being considered for a position? You know, that's like the basic premise of affirmative action. I think that would be more or less kind of relevant to what you're talking about, but yet you do see this trend where... um, I think there's a lot of things going on, too, where they're almost like cultural signals in these sort of Wall Street environments that maybe deter people from like maybe wanting to pursue something. And they're like, no, maybe I can start my own company because you have a lot of blacks that are their own, you know, business people. Yeah. And so 
maybe they don't want to work for someone else, you know, or I don't know exactly what goes into it, but I think the corporate structure is definitely that anytime you have a hierarchy, there's always like a, um, a sort of nepotism, if you will, into that. And you have to think of who's hiring the people. You know, I think you really have to go to that. Um, and that's not just well, Wall Street. That's a lot of big corporations. Maybe on a smaller level, there's a little bit more diversity. But I'm not sure, um, generally speaking, because I've never really been in an environment like that in, corporate, in the corporate world. But my sister talks about how she feels like she doesn't get the same kind of respect. She's a, an accountant for um, Lowe's company. You know the hotel chains and stuff, and so yeah. she she feels like at times she doesn't get, um, I guess, the respect, or maybe it's just like she battles with herself about finding that respect. But she actually had the conversation with me this weekend about how she manages so many people, but it's almost like she feels like she had to do so much more. But that's a great, that's a good example of the structure we're talking about. Mm-hmm. This this is not that, but um, but in hospitality, mm-hmm. you have a huge workforce at the bottom. Mm-hmm. Of like frontline employees, right, right, from everything from valets to front mm-hmm. desk to cooks to to you know uh, not janitor housekeepers, you know mm-hmm. you have a whole line down there, and then you get to the top, and then you got a huge executive suite that they've never cleaned, no doubt cleaned a room in their life. Yeah, you know it's it's, it's one of those things. Like even for me, like going into foreign languages is like was like um, I think that's why people are so surprised they figure out that I'm from the area. Like I'm from Nashville area, from Franklin. Yeah. They're like, this guy is not from another country. His parents aren't from another waiting, country. I was waiting to hear that you'd spent like five years somewhere. That's, yeah, that's kind of right. But no, it's just one of those things where, you know, self-taught, you know, yeah. when it came yeah. to the foreign languages. And there are not many Kikos in this department, in, in foreign languages. Yeah. But I want to change that image. I want to show people that, hey, you can be what you want to be. You don't have to just be, you don't have to settle for, you know, whatever... Go for your passions, you know, regardless of who you are. Go for your passions, pursue your dreams. But um, you do have overrepresentations in certain realms and underrepresentations in other ones. I so mean, we, me we know this. For a fact, you guys have talked about sports a lot, and you see such an overrepresentation yeah. of blacks in sports, and then a, a very prevalent underrepresentation in corporate America and um, these, uh, I don't know what kind of jobs you would call them, but. White collar jobs, maybe is yeah. the word I'm looking for. Yeah. Makes sense. You, there's just a, a big disparity between um, the presence of us in the physical activities versus the cerebral activities. So, for something that you just said, and something you actually, you know, you kind of mimicked what you said at the very beginning too. That you know, you're you're like one of the only black professors that a lot of your 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 kids see, right? For sure. Yeah. So, if not the only one. So I mean, so how do we? You know, you have to have some sort of representation there. Right. So how, how do we develop that? How do we get that? You know, what's what is the next step there? How do we continue to to, to move this forward uh, and, and get more representation? Um, you know, so so kids have the, that model. Right. I mean, if you don't see it, it's hard for you to ever think that you could achieve it. Right. I think. But there, there are more black people in the foreign languages now and the arts in general, the humanities. I think my I had a reawakening in 2016. I went to my first conference in my field in Houston, Texas, and it was 95% black scholars who are doing foreign language stuff that I do literary criticism. That was a moment for me. I took back, I looked, I was like, oh my gosh, I'm so 
like this is an amazing moment to actually see black PhDs everywhere yeah. doing the same thing I'm doing. I'm not the only one. And so that's really a reinforcement of like, wow, this is special. And so it is happening more. It just doesn't get... Um, we are underrepresented, but but it's one. I think that's also a mindset because a lot of the, the people where I come from, my parents emphasize the importance of education. And I don't know if necessarily some of the people that I grew up with, if their families emphasized education the way my family did. And my parents didn't even go to college, but they, they showed me the importance of getting an education. My dad's a very educated guy. He, he got me into politics. And so it's one of those things where there's so much depravity and so much violence in some of these areas. There, there is, because even the fabric of Franklin changed when we first moved in 1989, there were pretty much gunshots every month where in my neighborhood. And so that has an effect on you. It affects other families more so than others. And so it takes a lot of willpower to just like keep pursuing your dreams. But when you're in environments like that, it's hard to focus on a dream because you're focusing on survival and, and, and other sort of basic substance, you know. And so I think a lot of black kids in the inner cities and in neighborhoods that are very like run down when it comes to drugs and, you know, over policing. I think those people, there are a lot of Kikos in those neighborhoods, but I don't think that they necessarily get the encouragement that I got. And so it's, um, I think we have to think of it from that perspective. There are lots of people like me, lots of them, but I think a lot of them don't get to pursue that because they go through other endeavors, whether it's the day-to-day grind or whatever it may be. So <laughs> we mentioned at the beginning that this was going to be kind of a, a more real-life uh, everyday kind of conversation. We definitely got in the weeds, which it's, it's impossible not to. It's a, it's a very, like we said, it's a very nuanced issue with so many facets and different sides and different ways to, to, you know, <laughs> to look at the problem. But at the end of the day, it's a problem. But so, from an academic standpoint, I'm telling you buddy, we were like, that wasn't really straight weeds. That was like, <laughs> that was like the top of the weeds. <laughs> oh, I, oh, I never, I, like we're I said, the dandelions. I, I, the dandelions. The dandelions <laughs> you're right. You're right. This was like, it feels like a seven or an eight, but no, it's like a two or a three. I, I hear you. I hear you. I guess what I'm getting at is I, I am always a, you can ask my wife, I'm a problem solution guy. If mm-hmm. there's a problem, let's figure out the solution. Right. So as we kind of transition into a, a conclusion of sorts here, I want to talk about kind of where do you think we are and what what are some things that we can kind of um, do just from a person, like, you know, not a broad sweeping legislation thing. We can talk about that in a second, but but just as an individual as well. But so, so to begin with, I guess we had somebody write in and just said, do you believe that we've um, progressed forwards or gone backwards in the last couple of years? Okay, so that's the question, right? Yes, sorry. I, I don't think it has anything to do with the recent years. The, okay. the recent years are the recent years. It's just it's part of the broader fabric. And that's a, just a matter of perception. I don't think things were any different two years ago than they were 22 years ago. I just think that we have different generations that react to certain occurrences differently. I mean, we've been a country at war in my whole lifetime. And so that hasn't changed at all. Afghanistan was a thing 20 years ago. It was a thing in the 80s with the Soviet Union. That hasn't changed. Iraq has always been a part of our life with the Gulf War and even now. And so those things don't change a lot, but on the individual level, 
like what can we do to um we need to really promote individuality i think that's a lost um art in these times it's okay to think differently than anybody in your circles your friends your family anyone that you may feel is you know, anyone that you love it's okay to be different it is it really is um, it just means that you're more genuine sometimes about, you know, what's going on with you. Just be genuine with people and don't be afraid to be genuine. I think there's been sort of um, we've been taught to do what other people do too much and and mimic what other people do. And you lose value in your own self. And so we all have value. It's just a matter of um, we don't have to copy trends. We can be who we want to be. You know, we really can. We have to be free thinkers. We have to, you know, question things. You know, I feel like we don't question things anymore. You know, even if it's your parents, you know, you get older, you're not going to have the same experiences as your parents. So that's why I teach my kids. That's what my wife and I teach our kids. And so just like with um, Anthony and Jasmine, uh, the color blue, the color pink, it's silly. They're colors. They're kids. And so if Anthony likes pink, he likes pink. If my daughter likes blue, she likes blue, which they do. And so... Kids don't have these silly concepts about, oh, that's too masculine, that's too feminine. Just let kids be kids and let them do what they want to do, you know? And so we're supposed to be supporters of them, not tell them how to be. We're supposed to just tell them, hey, if they make a decision, weigh the decision, the pros and the cons. But if that's who the person is, that's who the person is. I think that's beautiful, right? I mean, I think that that is absolutely beautiful. And then the only other thing that I would probably want to add to what you just said was something that you had already said earlier, uh, which is about being kind of more, just being willing to be open and be exposed to new experiences and new new cultures and 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 new people, right? Being being open to have those conversations, being open to exploring more. So I think from an individual level. That's fantastic. Mm-hmm. Now, what about from an American perspective, right? What about from from our from our country? Well, you know, what's what's something that if you could change one thing, uh, what would it be, and why? I know you talked about some legislation. Is that your one thing you want to throw out here? No, it's more so. Um, I think I think that we need to change. Um, the average American needs to change their mindset about this. This is a world we have to live together as a world. I'd say that. 30% of my friends aren't from the United States at all. And those people have had significant effects on my life. Um, some of those people were, have, they've been in my weddings. They've been um, a part of every moment, you know, that I've dealt with, you know, my low points and high points. We don't even see people as people. We see, we see these arbitrary boundaries. But you have to think that these are people, man, like in these countries, like these people are just like me and you. They really are. And I think if people thought on that term of just a human level, like respect your fellow human and stop thinking about like what the government's telling you, what those people's governments are telling you, just be who you are and recognize that those people are no different than you are. They really aren't. There's, there's high and low in those countries. There's rich and poor in those countries. It sounds very simple to put it that way, but I think we lose sight that those people are just as valuable. It is. And it can be. It can be that simple. It really, I mean. All right. Hey, in, in closure, um, my, my uncle James wrote in, actually. He's got a couple questions oh, for wow. us at the end. And, and obviously, we, we've kind of skirted around these ideas, so we can answer the ones that, anyways, three-parter here. What can the average person do uh, to better race relations, um, kind of all the issues that we talked about tonight? 
what are maybe two barriers that you see there and how could those be overcome? And then kind of where do you see the country or the world in the next 10 to 20 years? Okay. So the first part, I think there's a psychology of the mind that we all have to confront. I sort of talked about this when I did a video, like my reaction to the George Floyd situation. It's one of those things where Repeat the first question again, uh, the just, first part uh, of that question. Yeah, yeah. What can the average person do? Black, white, okay. man, woman, doesn't matter. What can the average person do to better race relations and the issues that, that we kind of talked about tonight? I think we have to tie race relations to our broader conversation about human relations. And so what do I mean by that? I think the way we view traditional paradigms, we need to get rid of those traditional paradigms. Like the whole idea of a family. I think a lot of times the idea of the family... Like when I think of family in the traditional sense, I think of the patriarchy. I think is I think there's too much emphasis on marriage. There's too much emphasis on tradition. Man, woman, white, nuclear family. I think we need to think more in terms of families are all over the world. They intersex people that I know that have their own families with kids. It's not just cisgender white people or cisgender black people or anybody. People are people. Everyone has a different idea of what family is, and they have different sorts of families. And so I think we need to not be so judgmental towards people and because there are a lot of differences in people. We need to really stop being so judgmental towards people. And I think that that mentality goes into the racial lens as well because a lot of that is just simply not being exposed to people. And it's also... Don't let it be a checkbox. Keep going with it. You know, people are people. You should know more than just black people. You should know all types of people. Talk to people at your work. Talk to people that you see in the park. Talk to people in your family that you may not agree with. I think now, I think the biggest regret I had with the Floyd situation is that I lost friends because we didn't talk through things. And so I really feel like we should talk through things because, I mean, there are people in my family, like, I'm in an interracial marriage and we don't, I don't see eye to eye with my in-laws, but I think that our relationship has gotten better. Like just recently, like I actually had a talk with my mother-in-law recently that actually it kind of healed like things that happened 10 years, like just building into this relationship. Cause Jen and I have been together since 2010. So I think her just hearing like my side more she starts to understand like there's a lot more to it than just like, you know, I had to put up this certain image at first. And then once you lower the curtain a little bit, you can actually realize like, wow, I can be vulnerable. That person can be vulnerable. I think that's what we need to get to, to where we can, you know, talk about race or any issue like that. What about two barriers or any barrier? Like, I think peer pressure okay. personally is a big um, impediment. I think... Um, or impediment. I don't even know if I pronounce it okay. right. My wife would kill, <laughs> my wife right. would kill me if it comes to that. I would, get, I would get busted up and down. <laughs> you mean like... <laughs> I know how to spell that's, it, damn it. funny. I-M-P-E-I-M-E-N-T. Yeah. So, obstáculo in Spanish. That was good. That was good. But it's... See, I can say it, but I can't spell it. So the exact opposite. I say peer pressure. Peer pressure, okay. Peer pressure is a familial... Pressure in general, okay. just, um, you know, a lot of what we think is because um, we, we give a lot of respect to the quote unquote, the elders. Yeah. 
but our experiences aren't necessarily the experiences of our elders. And so it goes back into individuality again. Like you are your own person. And so I think we, we, we sometimes look at people that are great models, but then they shouldn't be the only model. The best model is yourself. You know, that's the way I like to look at that. Your life experiences are going to be different than everyone else's. And so your life experiences are going to be what forms you more so than any particular role model. Like it's it's just a good way to just diversify your your zone, but also look at yourself and, and say, hey, this is what I want to do, not what someone else wants me to do. What about the next 10 to 20 years? Are we moving forward or what are we, what are we doing? Are we making some progress? I don't I don't. I don't want to be a, a nihilist. What does that? Here. What does that hinge on? I don't want to be a nihilist, but I just think with um, the dangerous information war that we're in right now, I don't. I think we're looking at it from a broader standpoint when it comes to um, information. Which I'm an educator, so I, information means a lot to me. Yeah. I think when you decide for people before they can look at the information that this is bad information. Mm. I think it's a terrible precedent to set. And so it's almost like no one's banning pornography. It's all over the internet. And so it's one of those things where, so are you equating people's opinions or views to pornography? And it's, it's, it's just like once you start telling people you can't look at this, you can't look at that, it's, it's, if this continues, we're going to have less power. Like the, we're already pretty powerless as it is. And so then you have just the, the elite people up top telling you, you're basically just following orders at that point. Yeah. And so I think, but there is a lot of resistance to these orders, you know? And I think that resistance will always be there. I just, I think 20 years from now, there will be another revolution. There will be just as important as the 1965 civil rights era. Like, it wasn't even, you know what I mean, the 50s and the 60s, you know, it it was a build-up to it. But that whole particular era that we refer to, even Vietnam, you know, it kind of continues into that lens. I think there will be another revolution. There will be a cultural revolution, but I think it's going to be in the form of... um, January the sixth is going to be a flash in the pan. That's that. That's what, this is going to be a real serious situation to where lines will be drawn into the sand again, as far as like where people's loyalties go. And that's not to paint a negative picture. It's just a realistic picture on the ground. That's what I see on the ground. Just talking to to people, you know, on their channels, like other activists and stuff, yeah. like what they're doing. Like, there are news stories right now, like the general strike in October the 15th that I told you about earlier. A lot of people don't even know that there's a general strike that's scheduled for October the 15th this year because of all the other stuff in the news. So there's a lot of information that there's a lot of stuff going on the ground that is happening. And so if those demands are met, it's just going to build up more and more resistance and more aggression. And so someone's going to have to answer, whether it's the government or several different entities at once and so i don't think people are going to go out without a fight and so that's not to promote any violence it's just to violence is going to be inevitable anyway um, because this society is very um chaotic right now you know i don't know if it's getting better or not personally gotcha Corey, do you want me to pre-close yeah, do it, do it, and then I'll go for. You guys, anything else you want to you want to say before we cl- we're going to close out? 
No, um, you guys, I think you guys did such a great job with me, like, not attacking too much because yeah. I think before this interview, I really wanted to go into attack mode. <laughs> but I'm glad that I did it now. Like, in retrospect, I'm so glad I did too yeah. because. Um, I didn't have a lot of nice things to say, but I dialed back, and I think it was for the best. <laughs> because, again, well, <laughs> I'm trying to make people learn and not necessarily turn people off. Right. So, Well, um, yeah. Wow, what a conversation. Um, thank you again to uh, Kiko. Thank you, guys. Kiko Scruggs. Van and Corey, man. This is great for you guys to have me on here. Yeah, you, you were a blast. and Not a blast. Why would I say that? <laughs> this, is not, this is not a blast. <laughs> Although you were, you were enjoyable to hang out with. The conversation was not a blast. The company was good. Hooked me up with a little bit of was, red wine. Oh, yeah. UB40, baby. <laughs> we red, did. red wine. <laughs> uh, we had to get loosened up a little bit. Um, yeah, yeah, a little any, bit. Anyways, th- thank you so much for joining us here. Um, on a personal note from just my opinion, again, like I said, this is just, this would have been a difficult, this is a difficult conversation to have and, and you made it feel very uh, comfortable Mm -hmm. and also incredibly well-informed. Uh, just thank you. Thank you for hopping on here with us. No problem. Corey. I appreciate it. Keep having the conversations, people. Don't be afraid. I think people's hearts in the right place, but we can't keep having these things happening over and over and over again and not say anything about it. It's, it's just, just reach out to your friends. I wish, I wish I would have reached out to more people, you know, at an earlier time, but I'm starting to get back to that part right now. Corey, and to, to that take effect, us away. to that effect real quick, reaching out to more people, plug the, uh, plug the pod next month oh, again. Yeah, yeah, what's, yeah. The, what's the You're name? Starting your new- Enter the K zone. The K zone. Enter the K zone. D E C A Y like decay. No, no, enter, enter the K zone. The K zone. Uh-huh. Gotcha. Cool. Done. But people may think it's like a Clayton Kershaw podcast or something. <laughs> <That's okay. laughs> but no, it's, uh... Hey, that might bring you some listeners. I mean, hey, you know, it's Clayton, like, gosh, I'm going to watch dude. this guy analyze baseball. <laughs> oh my gosh, he's yeah. talking about white supremacy or something. <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. I could go well. I could go I could go one, one, one or two ways. Uh, but no, hey man, we, we do really greatly appreciate you coming on with us, having the conversation. As Van said, it was uh it was it was a important conversation, one that I'm glad we had somebody here to have with us that was well informed and able to, to discuss it. I think one of the things that we looked at, um, you know, when we're trying to look back here and trying to move forward is trying to connect the dots to the present, right? What really has caused worse some of these things have come from and how can we improve upon those to have a better tomorrow, a better 10 or 20 years, hopefully. You mm-hmm. never know where things are, are ever going to truly go. Uh, I mean, you know, I, I think a lot of it, One of the, there was a comedian I heard at one point who kind of put it this way on how you're teaching uh, these type of things in school. And if you go to like a sex ed class, you don't really start with the orgasm, right? I mean, you, you cannot <laughs> tell them that, you know, you don't tell them, that, but you also don't tell them that they were, everybody was dropped off by a store. So there's, there's gotta be a balance. There's gotta find a way to truly get together and, and move forward uh, and, and moving forward. Uh, one of the things that, you know, you talked about um, mm-hmm. in the last 20 or 30 minutes or so was, you know, people are people and, and mm-hmm. to be you, to be your best self uh, and to go out and do that. And I, I strongly encourage that message. And then to somebody who's wrote in, somebody who's been on with us quite a bit, you know, a similar very quote that I should have ended his pod with, but everybody love everybody. Tyler King coming out for us. Everybody just love everybody. Yeah, go out, uh, uh, talk to people. Don't look at the TV so much, but actually talk to people. 
That's it. That's it. Talk to people. Learn. Be open-minded, right? I mean, it's not like we sat here and agreed on every little thing, but we were open-minded and able to have the conversation, mm-hmm. right? And and lastly, but definitely not least, and especially since you're going to watch some Ted Lasso next, oh, and guys. we did just kind of talk about this, you know, you, you you know, definitely big thank you to to everybody and you know to the family that you're born with and the family that you make along the way. Let's go out and make it for a better tomorrow. All right, go Richmond.